I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmundburg Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've been doing this for about a year. I, I, I want to actually have that memorized, uh, but I'm not quite there, even though I feel like I should be. Uh, today, we're, we have a, a full show um, that actually covers a diverse slate of topics and things that are happening in, in, in different sectors. Um, we're actually going to kick it off with Rachel who's talking about Elon Musk and Twitter. Ben is gonna to talk to us about the moderate myth of Merrick Garland and hopefully continue to use that level of alliteration. Um, I'm talking about Mitt Romney uh, deciding to vote for Ketanji Brown Jackson and just sort of generally um, how the Republican party has, has handled this process. And then Josh was going to take us home with Ginny Thomas in January 6th. So everyone but Rachel, interestingly enough, is talking about the Supreme Court in some way today, um, which Rachel usually is like rushing to talk about. Um, but Rachel, start us off here with Elon Musk. Hey, I'll dive in on the Supreme Court, don't worry. But yes, I wanna, <laughs> I wanna talk about uh, the news that Elon Musk uh, first announced on Monday that he had purchased a 9.2% stake in Twitter, making him Twitter's largest shareholder. And for context, that's like 10 times the amount of uh, shares in the company that Jack Dorsey owns. And Jack Dorsey is the co-founder and former CEO. So huge, huge stake in Twitter. Uh, but then the next day it was announced that he is now Twitter's newest board member. Um, and so the reactions on the right have uh, been I think for the most part, very positive. Everyone's looking at this as a positive development. Elon Musk sort of has a reputation as a billionaire eccentric, you know, a, a brilliant guy who can walk in and I think they hope can flip over the table in the boardroom and say enough, enough with the censorship, you know, and change the free speech or change the speech culture at Twitter, which he hit, which he hinted actually on Twitter that he might do. Um, so I have a piece out in the, in the Federalist today uh, Wednesday, basically outlining policy steps I think that he could take if he's serious. Everything from obviously the, the the big elephant in the room, letting Trump back on Twitter, but also you know to stop banning political speech altogether, to things like moving Twitter's offices out of the Bay Area uh, and to someplace else, you know, away from the coasts to force a little bit more ideological diversity uh, into some of the content moderation. But I think what's there's a couple of angles I think that you could look at this at this this unfolding of events with, you know, and one of them, I have seen a couple of takes on the right who are like, or which, you know, which say, well, it's great that the market is working. It's great that, you know, we can address Twitter, you know, as a private company. And it's like, well, yeah, if we can all just become the richest man in the world uh, and spend several billion dollars to purchase a stake in these companies, then then maybe we too can have a, have a say in how they're run. And so I think, but I think that points to the state uh, that we're in, which is we literally have to beg rich people to get a seat on these boards and hope and pray that they are ideologically aligned with us. Um, because our, our speech and discourse is controlled primarily by, you know, left-wing tech elites. Uh, and that's the reality. So do I think that Elon Musk could change Twitter? Uh, I think there's a potential for it. Although as a board member, he will now be limited in the amount of the company he can own. Uh, that was a term of his board seat. And he'll also have to commit to, you know, convincing other board members to go along with him, which I think would be looking at Twitter's board is an uphill slog. Um, you know, a slightly analogous situation that I reference in the article is the fact that, you know, pro free speech warriors or enthusiasts, if you will, uh, Peter Thiel and Mark Andreessen have served on Facebook's board for a long time. And they have not really made a dent in you know, turning the ship of, of Facebook on the censorship question. So, you know, I think it's an interesting development. I'm, I'm curious what the group thinks. Um, is this a, you know, benevolent, uh, you know, white knight quest uh, that, that Elon Musk has put himself on for the sake of free speech in America? Or is this just a sort of cynical move to bounce Elon to his next gambit uh, while he makes a couple billion along the way? 
so, so, I mean, I, I don't know exactly where my thoughts are. They're kind of still developing, to be honest with you. I mean, I definitely agree with like the thrust of your criticisms, obviously, which, which is that it is utterly pathetic and it's trying to spotlight on the magnitude of the problem that people who simply don't want to be censored, deplatformed, are forced to effectively beg at the table for scraps in the form of someone buying like a single digit stake, right? I mean, literally like a 9% stake is what we're talking about here. Um, uh, you know, look, I, I've long been torn on Elon Musk. He's kind of an, a weird dude, to, 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 to put it mildly. Um, way back when I started uh, this my Newsweek op-ed editor job, almost two years ago now, it's hard to believe, I published a really good op-ed from my uh, kind of like libertarian-leaning hedge fund manager friend of mine who basically accused Elon Musk of all sorts of, um, you know, like SEC violation kind of uh, fraud type stuff. I don't know. I I have never fully dug into like the enigma that is Elon Musk. I, I I'm not part of the cult of Tesla. I can put it to you that way. I'm very happy with my kind of uh, old school gasoline powered vehicle. Um, but I mean, I, look it, to the extent that he can get in there and make things better. I'm obviously going to cheer him on. Um, I mean, but I think that is a second order story. The first order story is that this ought to kind of shine a spotlight that the status quo is just totally unsustainable. I, I, I mean, if you actually accept the paradigm that the social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, obviously uh, Google with their algorithms and the search, if you, if you take seriously the notion that this is the 21st century public square, which I think you should, I think that that is a fundamentally accurate analogy, going back to you know 1776, Thomas Paine passing around comments. I mean, when I, when, when I do all these big tech events, the, the point that I make is like, you know, Thomas Paine passing out the common sense pamphlet in Philadelphia in 1776. If you were to do that today to try to disseminate a message, like go to the town square, whatever the heck that even means, I mean, you'd probably be like arrested for being like a crazy homeless person, right? I mean, like this literally is the town square. So if you take that seriously, then this is utterly pathetic that we're forced to kind of beg like this. And hopefully I think the long-term lesson is that people will look at that and try to like think, huh, something's just not right here. That's what I'm hopeful for at least. Yeah, I think um, it's a great test case of this, um, and and it's 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 not in and of itself going to be uh, momentous and culture changing. I mean, I guess it, Twitter is sadly an important part of the culture because it's where our elites spend their time, um, and it's where they talk through these important issues. It's an assignment desk for most of the elite media, um, so yes, it it is an important part of the culture, but. Elon Musk is, uh, I think he is so, somewhat of a tastemaker ideologically in the same sense that like Joe Rogan is. I do think there's a magnetic attraction to him among uh, younger Americans in the same way that uh, works with Joe Rogan. They like people who at least appear to speak their mind. Um, and I think Elon Musk is a savvy businessman. So I think some of this, whether it's sincere or not is, is up for question. But he's doing it because he understands that there's an incentive in a large part of the country for it. So I'm curious to see how he changes Twitter. But remember that there, even if he manages to, uh, you know, reinstate people like Alex Jones, or more importantly, reinstate a culture that platforms people like Alex Jones, because that's what our town square is, this clanging of different opinions, um, bad ones, good ones that duke it out. Even if he does that, we still have this, this generation that has been institutionally conditioned for years to uh, you know, believe free speech is, is one thing and not another thing, to have these very unhealthy ideas about what the town square should be looked at, should look like, what hate speech is, what bigotry is. Um, and and you know, I think there's division among younger people on that question, but there's a, a huge group of them um, that, it, and that is powerful and where there is no division. And in fact, division is not tolerated. Uh, so it's a test case for sure, but I, I really think it can only go so far. Yeah, I think I take a similarly pessimistic kind of view of this story. I, I sort of view this as analogous to, you know, you got to build your own internet, you got to build your own financial system, we need to build our own hundreds or thousands of Elon Musk's to even have a chance to compete in a world in which you have progressive capture of every single influential institution. So this is sort of a, an issue, I think, of we've lost and this sort of illustrates the fact that we've lost in terms of the defense of free speech and intellectual discourse in the country but that said you have to deal with reality as it is and so is it better to then simply leave the battlefield or actually try to get behind people who might be able to fight on your behalf in a paradigm that is already so unmoored from where we ought to be when it comes to free speech yeah absolutely you have to deal with the world as it is 
And so from that perspective, you know, to the extent, obviously, he can provide some semblance of balance, some semblance of a voice for normal, common sense Americans, uh, that'd be great. But I also think it is worth noting, as Rachel alluded to, that he cannot obtain a large enough stake to effectuate a hostile takeover of Twitter. So I think from Twitter's perspective, they get the benefit of saying, essentially, they have a token free speech proponent on their board who will help boost their share price, probably. But at the same time, they don't actually have to ultimately cede potentially majority control to him. In fact, they can't contractually. So consequently, I think this is probably something of a win all around, I guess, to the extent that he can actually effectuate any changes in a platform that unfortunately does have outsized influence for all of its flaws. Um, let's see if he actually is able to effectuate any of those changes or if this is more of an, a matter of optics and share price boosting and ultimately no benefit to uh, the half the country that could easily be deplatformed and censored uh, within the next few years. We're actually sticking with you, Ben. Um, unless anybody has any final thoughts, I'll toss it back to you to talk about Merrick Garland and the myth of his uh, moderation. Yeah, so last week and over the last two weeks, there have been a slew of stories out there about sort of pressure on Merrick Garland and the Justice Department from the January 6th committee over the DOJ not moving quickly enough for their tastes on these referrals for criminal contempt charges against various Trump world individuals, as well as it, it appears clearly, you don't have to read between the lines, pressure or seeming pressure from the White House uh, over not only the, the slow pace or not being extreme enough in the January 6th prosecution and investigatory efforts, uh, but also the White House saying, you know, basically Hunter Biden, uh, there's nothing to see there. He didn't do anything wrong. And of course, then Ron Klain, uh, chief of staff, has then sort of shifted to, well, the president wasn't involved, <laughs> you know, to the extent there was any wrongdoing, even though, of course, as, as we've said before, the entire Biden family business was, of course, monetizing Joe Biden's career in Washington. So I think there's there's been a portrayal and The New York Times creates this portrayal of a Biden White House that wants Merrick Garland to be more extreme, to, to hammer down on those insurrectionists and those in the concentric circles around them uh, that are, by the way, now being pursued by the DOJ, as we know that its probe has now expanded beyond just those who were at the Capitol that day and engaged in the breach to the conditions that created that Capitol breach, the what, what transpired at the ellipse, the rally that day, separate and apart from what happened at the Capitol, which sort of you can see there in a sense that perhaps the DOJ might be working hand in glove with a J6 committee, which is, of course, itself looking at the causes, which could be just about anything for what transpired on January 6th, and encompass pursuing just about anyone in the conservative movement. Um, I think that this is a ruse. I think this, this effort to portray Merrick Garland as being moderate, methodical, not pressing and pushing hard enough in terms of his pursuit of January Sixers. And then, of course, we have this Hunter Biden prosecution going on at the same time. I think this is a ruse to essentially shift the Overton window of a Democrat party, and this is the House and the executive branch, out for blood in pursuing political wrong thinkers, and America Garland, who just isn't there. I think it's false because I think we know that, first of all, the DOJ is engaged in an unprecedented prosecutorial and investigative effort uh, where they are treating people who participated that day as terrorists or almost terrorists, including seeking terrorist enhancements in sentencing. Uh, we don't even need to go through the full litany of radical actions by the standard of any other Democrat president that Merrick Garland's DOJ has undertaken, but just a few of them. Of course, leveling sedition charges against Jan several January Sixers right after this year's January 6th anniversary under pressure, or at least rhetorical pressure from the left to pursue them as the insurrectionists the left claims they are. Uh, recently, of course, the Civil Rights Division issued a radical guidance on transgenderism that states can't block gender affirming care within, within themselves, within their jurisdictions. The Garland DOJ has pursued states who have dared to engage in election audit, election integrity pursuit efforts. And of course, his office has per, uh, supported the pursuit of parents, wrong thinkers as terrorists who dared to challenge over COVID policies. 
and the National Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism, of course, he has supported, as well as the creation of a new domestic terror unit at DOJ. So for all those reasons, this notion that Garland is somehow moderate and just not with his party, even though it was supposed to be the wholly apolitical and independent Justice Department under Joe Biden and Merrick Garland, I think this is false. I think this is about shifting the Overton window as to what is acceptable and what the party is demanding, so that if Merrick Garland comes even an inch to, I guess, the right of these outcomes, which are totally unmerited based upon the facts of the cases, they will be able to say that, look, even moderate Merrick Garland blessed these decisions. Look, and he did so in a way that was unimpeachable and we criticized him for it. And he still, and look where he still came out and didn't weather under, under our pressure. I think that is exactly the ruse that's been created here. Maybe you all disagree. Maybe you think that uh, there is really a dichotomy between where Merrick Garland is and where his party is but I don't see it. I think this is another information operation from Washington, D.C. Uh, what do you all think about this news coverage of late? I mean, I think the idea that Merrick Garland is a moderate is something many people bought. I mean, look at the confirmation vote. 20 Republican senators voted for him. Um, and I think they must regret that now, right? <laughs> Seeing as how he's, he's acted. And I think, you know, there's consistent data points chalking up to this fact you know, not the least of which was the memo that was sent from like the National School Board Association or something, basically urging the Department of Justice to treat parents at school boards as domestic terrorists. And when pressed under questioning from Congress, you know, Merrick Garland was like, oh, we never saw that memo. You know, we never, that we never acted on it. And, and later it was proven that they did, right? Like so many lies this administration has told or, and the mainstream media has covered for them, that too has unraveled. So this notion that Merrick Garland you know, I think is, is a moderating influence at all and not just, you know, like so much of the Biden administration handmaiden of the progressive left on so many of these issues, I think continues to be to be made clear. And I will say this may be the only time on this podcast I will ever praise Mitch McConnell, but it was very, <laughs> the fact that he did what he is best at, which is nothing and didn't put Mark Garland on the floor, I think was a, was a in, in hindsight, one of the wisest decisions uh, of the last five years. Well, it's interesting because I think it shows the limits of our definition of moderation now in that for the media, uh, somebody like Merrick Garland is indeed a moderate because they are sort of cultural radicals, right? So like whatever he's doing on January 6th is considered moderate to them because they are totally on board with it and don't fully understand the country enough to define what's mainstream. Um, and, and so I think that's always been a, a, the case with Merrick Garland. And it is fascinating too, as a, a media case study to see when they latch on to a label and a narrative and an image, it's like nothing can puncture that. Um, and so I'm like flashing back to 2014 um, and 2015 right now with Merrick Garland just being this like mild mannered, um, you know, this unimpeachable character, unimpeachable qualifications. Um, how could anybody not vote to confirm or not want to confirm Merrick Garland and nothing could possibly puncture that narrative. And I think we continue to see that, but it is also very much fueled by the fact that the media is in no position define what's a moderate anymore um, or what's mainstream. And I, I do think this shows that well. So uh, I'll, I'll be the one, the four of us, to be a little more nuanced here, I guess, but I ultimately do agree with the thrust of what you said, Ben. The modicum of nuance, I think, if you actually go back and look at, at, at um, Merrick Garland's record on the D.C. circuit, I think back to like when I was in law school, and you know some some uh, my, not that I had that many liberal friends, but from my more like liberal friends and acquaintances, I think back to like what clerkships they were looking to apply to. The more like far left students certainly were not looking anywhere near Merrick Garland's chambers, even though he was he was on the D.C. Circuit, which is kind of the most prestigious of all the circuit courts. And the reason for doing so is if you look if you look at his track record, at least in kind of two areas. Um, kind of like prosecution, bread and butter, kind of law and order issues, as well as kind of its natural corollary, which is kind of like Gitmo, national security, habeas corpus kind of issues. He probably was, to his mild credit, at least as a judge at that time, he was more moderate, certainly, than where certainly than where kind of the, the base of the Democratic Party is today on kind of prosecution, sentencing, and, and, and habeas issues, especially as it pertains to Gitmo. 
Um, I, I my reading situation is that I think that was kind of cynically actually why he was nominated um, to replace Justice Scalia is because I think um, uh, President Obama obviously knew that Senator uh, McConnell would do what he did, and of course he was right to do that. Um, but you know, I, I think the Democrats thought that the optics of Republicans shooting down someone who had a slightly more moderate track record would ultimately redound to their benefit. The ballot box, obviously, that did not work out. Um, with all of that being said. Um, I totally agree with the, the fact pattern that Ben has laid out about his actual actions as Attorney General of the United States, which have certainly not been moderate. They have been extremely far from moderate. Um, obviously, the charges of sedition speak for themselves. One thing that um, I'm not sure we've actually mentioned yet on this segment, obviously, is the genuinely horrifying October 4th memo from last year with respect to kind of the critical race theory and kind of the uprisings in the classrooms and the parents. That was horrifying. That was genuinely horrifying. I know Senator Hawley called for his impeachment over that. Senator Cotton, I think, might have said something similar. Uh, McConnell, to his credit, um, also criticized Garland over that. That was that was appalling stuff, like really appalling stuff. And the time it was issued on October 4th was kind of right in the heat, obviously, of the, of the Virginia group gubernatorial election and Youngkin's momentum there. Um, so he really stepped on it there. Um, and his actions have been very far from moderate. Um, I do think my my nuance basically is just that I think his his tenure, his track record as a judge years ago was probably slightly more moderate than the median kind of Democrat nominee today. It's certainly more so than like a, than like a Katanji Brown Jackson, for instance, that's all. Which feels like another good reminder of how the the media can't define what moderate is anymore because if you look at how they treat any parents that protest, it's like it's a, all a bat signal to QAnon, um, and the the left has just shifted so much over the years that even somebody with a fairly moderate prior record like Merrick Garland is issuing things like that October fourth letter. It's it's unbelievable and it speaks to the. Um, rapid ideological shift to the left. Um, and on that note, actually, this is a great segue to Mitt Romney, uh, somebody who has been tugged along with the rapid intellectual shift, not of the left, um, but actually of the country more broadly, that as the left shifts further left, it's going to bring those moderates um, along with it. And those moderates like Mitt Romney, who tried to convince the country he was, quote, severely conservative, let's not forget that, um, it is now voting to confirm Ketanji Brown Jackson, which is remarkable because he voted against her confirmation um, to the, the lower court just a year ago. As Rachel has pointed out on Twitter and in other places, that's unheard of, voting to confirm somebody uh, voting against somebody's confirmation to a lower court, but to their confirmation to the Supreme Court in 10 months Amazing. And when he was finally asked what changed, Romney said that he wasn't, you know, comfortable with uh, her positions on some stuff. Uh, but now that she's had some time, he's he's comfortable with those positions, which, again, is ludicrous, because if anything, what we've learned is that, first of all, her decisions have a ridiculous rate of being overturned. Um, and secondly, she had the, this entire Supreme Court vetting process has shown that she has a, a genuinely problematic, but like very activist um, and progressive activist record as a jurist. And it's not even something that she's tried to run from. She just very clearly, and, and Josh can speak to this, I'm sure, cut from that mold of those, the sort of progressive worldview of the judicial branch and um, the, the substantiating argument for judicial activism. It's just who she is. And again, even if you're doing courtesy votes, Susan Collins style, um, you wouldn't want to confirm somebody um, of that mindset. Uh, and so for, for Mitt Romney to flip, I think it's bigger than Mitt Romney. Um, it's, it's, of course, it's bigger than Mitt Romney, but at the same time, you know, I don't think Mitt Romney is representative of the Republican establishment anymore. I, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think he's actually to the left of the Republican establishment. Um, if you look at like Kevin McCarthy, where someone like him is, it's, there's no way Mitch McConnell is, is voting to confirm Ketanji Brown Jackson. Um, and so it, it is very interesting that the Republican nominee for president in 2012, who was attacked viciously over nonsense, um, has gone in the trajectory that he has. And I'll kick this open to the group. 
with the the kind of caveat that I'm curious as to how you guys think this is sort of bigger than Romney himself. You know, I don't, I'm actually very interested in the question of Mitt Romney right now, <laughs> because this, this vote is, is a data point in what I think represents a total about face for Romney in a way that it doesn't for people like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. Um, you know, those two are, are just being who they are, right? I think depending on where you sit on the right, they're either, you know, principled moderates or they're total rhinos either way. Like this is just who they've been. Mitt Romney used to be the, you know, rhino governor of Massachusetts, but then ran for president as a conservative. And now in the last like month and a half has just completely gone off and, and done an about face. If you think about this vote, think about the fact that he intentionally, I think, skipped the vaccine mandate vote in the Senate that Republicans would have won. He was intentionally absent from that vote, then went on to vote with Democrats to keep toddlers masked. Uh, he voted on that in committee and he refuses to endorse his same state Senator Mike Lee in his reelect, re which is again, almost unheard of to do to a same state colleague. I mean, Rick Santorum endorsed Arlen Specter for crying out loud. Like <laughs> there's just a <laughs> thing that you do <laughs> when you're from the same state. So all of this has happened very rapidly uh, in, in sort of in sequence. And to me, it speaks of, of some kind of broader shift that's going on with Mitt Romney, where he it, it, like, he almost just doesn't even consider himself a Republican anymore. And maybe he's setting up a play to run as an independent. I don't know, but there's something going on with Romney. I don't know what it is. And I'll just jump in very quickly to add, I think this also speaks to the fetish, we've spoke, we talked about this last week, the, the fetishization of punching right, that like it is so tempting and you get rewarded by the elite so much to punch at Republicans. Like I genuinely wonder how David French would vote if he were a Senator on this question. Yeah. Um, and I think Romney represents that. Well, I mean, the, the one takeaway I think from that, all those data points, I think he's positioning for something and that makes sense for who Mitt Romney is because he's just like an avatar of cold ambition. Mm -hmm. to be at the end of the day sorry <laughs> just gonna put that out there i i mean that should be like a bumper sticker slogan right like avatar of cold ambition i love that um look mid, mid, mid romney I mean, he is ultimately after Mitt Romney at the end of the day. It is extraordinarily difficult, perhaps impossible, to look at his decades-long track record serving in the public-facing sphere and conclude that this is a man who is animated by anything remotely resembling principle, policies, kind of a lofty idea of like America as a shining beacon, you know, truth, justice in the American way, anything like that. This is a guy, obviously, who in 1994, back in Massachusetts, when he was running against Ted freaking Kennedy for U.S. Senate in Massachusetts, promised to be to the left of Ted Kennedy on gay rights. Who you know, like I and abortion. And he obviously was famously pro-choice, which you know, if you take seriously the fact that he's a devout Mormon, is perhaps impossible to believe. So, like, query that whether he was actually just overtly lying about that. I mean, I don't want to accuse him of just straight up lying, but I think it's I I think it's plausible at least. It's something that I think reasonable people can certainly ask. Um, yeah, but you go back to like the left of Kennedy on gay rights to the severely conservative businessman quip from the 2012. I mean, like the whole thing is 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 obviously a bit of a joke. Um, obviously, he voted to imp impeach President Trump. Um, Hadley Arcus actually had a fantastic piece for Claremont's American Mind website, just utterly excoriating Mitt Romney for his vote on the on, on the Trump impeachment. I'm blanking on the name of the piece, but I would encourage listeners and viewers to go check it out. It was really it was really quite biting and acerbic. Um, I, I don't know what Mitt Romney has in mind next. I know that the people of Utah deserve far, far better than Senator Mitt Romney. That is certainly for sure. Um, you know, Rachel and I, Rachel and I have both had our um, experiences kind of working or interning with Senator Lee, who is a fantastic statesman for the state of Utah. Utah is a state that deserves a, 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 a not that you can kind of just carbon copy Mike Lee, but they deserve someone along those lines. They deserve far, far better than a Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins style Republican. And by, by the way, the people of Alaska deserve better too than Lisa Murkowski, but apparently they've been voting her in for so many years now. I, I, I don't really know what's up with that, but at a bare minimum, I really, really, really hope that Utah does better than Romney in the very near future. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really have many nice things to say about uh, Willard Mitt Romney, so I'm, I'm probably going to refrain except to say that, yes, I think he's, he's setting himself up perfectly to be a failed Democrat 2024 presidential candidate, uh, or perhaps on the independent ticket, I guess we'll have to see. Maybe it'll be Romney Cheney. 
And uh, wouldn't that be hilarious to watch? Um, but I will I'll make a broader point about the Senate Republicans with respect to KBJ. And, and that is that this nomination, she should be held up as this is what Democrats believe in terms of law and order in this country, which is that criminals are victims and basically society is at fault and the society's job is to coddle them rather than to punish them and protect law-abiding citizens. Like this is exactly, this is a feature, not a bug of the progressive Democrat party. And so why you hear no senators really talking, making KBJ a symbol, the personification of where the left Democrat party is. And I think they ought to be hammering that point home every single day. Do you want to be, do you want to live in a country where law and order, where the arbiter of law is a KBJ? Because this is who Joe Biden has put up as one of nine of the most powerful people in this country after the president himself. And I don't really hear any. Obviously, you have a few people have been very outspoken on select issues regarding her soft sentencing in a whole slew of matters, her uh, coddling jihadists in terms of public defense of them and beyond. But it's still a minority, as best I can see, among Republican senators when the Republican Party should be holding up KBJ as the ideal personification of the progressive Democrat party. Why aren't they hammering that home? Why aren't they making that an issue in 2022? The silence to me is deafening. As for Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney gonna Mitt Romney. That's how I see it. And with that, we'll toss it to Josh. Okay, so we can conclude our trifecta of Supreme Court or Supreme Court adjacent issues with the discussion of uh, Jane Thomas, the longtime conservative political activist, who, of course, is the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, the greatest living American in this great country, um, and what, the, what Democrats are currently doing with respect to her and, uh, by implication, her husband as pertains to, to the January 6th Select Committee recusal and all that stuff. So for, to kind of catch up the listeners here, and the viewers, um, Jean Thomas has, has been a conservative activist for a very long time. This has always, always, always since day one rankled the left in a very profound way. Obviously, the confirmation hearing for Justice Clarence Thomas implicated a lot of issues. There was the there were the false malicious charges with respect to Anita Hill, obviously, and sexual harassment, um, which Clarence Thomas I think accurately referred to as a as a high tech lynching. Um, there's all sorts of kind of um, un grotesque kind of Uncle Tom um, slurs that have been kind of hurled his way over the years. But one of the recurring leitmotifs of the left's kind of decades long sustained war against Justice Thomas has been the notion that Ginny is such kind of a prominent forward facing conservative activist. Um, and, you know, I think numerous people on this podcast know Ginny to, to one extent or another. She is quite um, prominent and has been kind of DC conservative circles. So to kind of fast forward to um, the January 6th Select Committee, I guess it, it, it was recently unveiled. I don't actually remember exactly how this came, came, came to light. Maybe someone else can, can, can remind us um, that in the aftermath of the 2020 election, Ginny was texting, um, uh, well, with, with, with Rachel's now CPI colleague, but former White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, um, with respect to um, you know, allegations of fraud and all that in 2020 election, kind of urging kind of the White House um, and, and the DOJ to kind of do whatever they could to kind of investigate it and, and, and all of that. Um, she attended the January 6th demonstrations, obviously did not partake in any of the actual kind of, um, you, you know, uh, storming of the Capitol or anything like that. So um, Democrats are uh, apoplectic about this. Um, they are kind of beating the war drum, so to speak, to try to kind of trot out Jane Thomas in front of the January 6th committee. Um, I think it is still to, to be determined whether or not they actually go so far as to subpoena her. There are all sorts of kind of egregious things being said about this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has gone out and called for Justice Thomas to recuse himself or, or, or actually, you know, she's actually said, she's, she actually said resign or, or be impeached. Um, not to put too fine a point on this, um, but Justice Clarence Thomas was one of the greatest defenders of the United States Constitution back at a time when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was probably being read the Communist Manifesto back when she was in diapers. Um, so she can take that line and go, you know, where with it. Um, but, you know, this has been kind of a recurring theme as far as as far as the left is concerned. There's all sorts of other norms that are being violated. These are obviously the people that kind of pretend to care about norms. Um, by the way, the notion that a woman cannot have an independent career and like independent thoughts from her husband, 
you know, aren't these like the purported like would be feminists? Like, isn't like AOC like kind of like a radical feminist? And now she's saying like a man and has to like control a woman and has to like resign or be impeached because of his of his woman's actions. I mean, the implication here that the man controls the woman fundamentally sexist, obviously, right? I mean, in a way that. Um, you know, if the shoes were reversed and kind of the partisan affiliations were reversed, this never in a million years would happen here. Um, uh, another kind of line of thought is that the notion that there is a cause for recusal here, I think, is extraordinarily thin. Um, I, a lot of folks are saying that Justice Thomas should have recused himself from the election-related litigation, the aftermath of the 2020 election because of these text messages. I mean, that is that that is farcical and ludicrous on its face. I mean, the listeners and viewers can go ahead. And you know, Google 28 U.S. Code Section 455. That is the federal recusal statute. It's a pretty long statute, so I'm not going to kind of be, uh, be pedantic and read it here on air. But you know, we're talking here about things like like direct, like financial or fiduciary like responsibilities. So, for example, you know, if if Joe Biden were Supreme Court Justice and not President of the United States, then he would have to recuse himself from a case involving Burisma because of his son. I mean, that is that is kind of the quintessential case for recusal. Um, what's happening here doesn't come anywhere close to that. By the way, the, 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 the hypocrisy is yet another angle here. Elena Kagan famously was Solicitor General of the United States in the Obama administration when Obamacare was passed into law. She refused to recuse himself um, from NFIB versus Sebelius, the first Obamacare case that was quite controversial at the time here. Um, so there's all sorts of hypocrisy. Those, there's all sorts of kind of you know, double standards, which have become fairly routine, I think, for Justice Thomas. Um, but the notion that Justice Thomas, I think, would, would cow to these sorts of threats that he would even consider for a, a fraction of a second, obviously, to resign. I mean, I have to imagine he's getting a good laugh out of that. But, um, you know, it's, it's just grotesque hypocrisy. It makes me very sad. And at the end of the day, this is really only happening because the left just despises, just despises Clarence Thomas. They have since day one. They are trying to get him in every possible way imaginable. And there is zero chance whatsoever that if this were happening with, with the partisan affiliations reversed, that this would be viewed as anything other than abhorrently racist and sexist to boot, I think. But on that note, I'll see if any of you guys agree or disagree or have anything else to add. I know Rachel has thoughts because she was mentioned in the New Yorker profile of how horrible Ginny Thomas is. Yeah. <laughs> hey, for the record, I love Ginny Thomas and I think she does great work. And to Josh's point, that has nothing to do with her husband's job. And it's it's amazing that the left gets away with this. It blows my mind because this critique of Ginny Thomas comes around every like, couple of years. It's a cyclical at this point, overt sexist smear against the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice, which only comes around, Josh, as you point out, because they hate Clarence Thomas. Uh, they want, you know, any any hook they have uh, to go after him, they do. And it's, you know, I think, I can't remember who, it may have been Mark Paoletta for you, Josh. Uh, Mark Paoletta, former H.W. Uh, uh, Bush counsel and former OMB general counsel, has been close to the Thomases for years. I think, you know, was very involved in Justice Thomas's confirmation. Um, you know, has, has pointed out that this is a signal also to like, you know, any African-American who steps out of line, you know, and has the audacity to think for themselves, like, this is what happens to you. And I think that he's made that point that, you know, the left is trying to, to, to shove that into the arena as well. But he also does a really good job of just accounting for the numerous times spouses of judges or Supreme Court justices have had their own careers. Everybody, as you point out from, you know, Elena Kagan being involved in issues to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband who continued to litigate, I think, on a number of issues that came before the Supreme Court. Like this is not out of bounds. It's just out of bounds because they don't like Justice Clarence Thomas and they want to smear his wife and take her down. And I think it's appalling. Uh, and I think the movement, you know, to the extent that we can should stand up against this because it's unbelievably sexist. Yeah. And it's, it's all in the, the the number one context. This is all because the left has a special place in its heart for Clarence Thomas hate. Like they are so irked by Clarence Thomas. They hate him so deeply that they resurrect the exact same narrative once every few years. They latch on to anything they learn about Ginny Thomas um, and the work she has done for literally years. And Paoletta does an excellent job um, every time he writes about this. He's written this for Federalist a couple of times too, of showing the double standard by looking at 
uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg by looking at what the norms are on the lower courts, what the norms have been on the Supreme Court, by talking about what when Jane, Jane Mayer makes a big deal about Jimmy Thomas's, Jenny Thomas' connections to groups that have filed amicus briefs, how that is actually how, how that could possibly be relevant in some of these cases. And when you break it down, it just turns into Jenny Thomas is a conservative activist. She is a, a, a normal conservative activist. And that did lead a lot of people um, to opinions about the election and what vi former Vice President Pence should have done that I completely disagree with, but it was where conservative activists were. Um, you know, the sort of the, the grassroots people and Ginny Thomas, though she's, you know, pretty powerful person in a powerful uh, city married to a powerful man, um, is very much representative of the grassroots and, and not the political establishment. Um, as an activist, she's, she's very much a grassroots type of person. Um, and so that's the bottom line. She's a conservative activist. She has been for years. That's where conservative activists are. Uh, and she sent a text message to Mark Meadows that went nowhere. I, I, it's just like, it's unbelievable this idea that she can't have a separate opinion from her husband. Um, we have no idea. We shouldn't have any idea. Um, so anyway, this is just the, the important takeaway from all of this is, you know, for all the hypocrisy, whatever else, this is just about how bitterly the left despises Clarence Thomas because he is a black man who has, uh, who is not a progressive um, and he's in a position of power um, and it, he defended their insane accusations. Um, so they just, they hate him more than anyone. So uh, I have several thoughts here and to the extent this kind of cuts into our parting shots, I'll be happy to see in my time back after. Um, full disclosure up front, Ginny Thomas is a dear friend of mine. She's been a supporter of mine. We've worked together on projects in the past. So I come at this with uh, bias, but also sympathy and compassion and, and a view here, um, which is yet pained to watch as she and her husband, who have been attacked viciously and maliciously for three decades, basically, continue to take those attacks. And I think they continue to take them because they never back down at the end of the day. And the left cannot tolerate anyone who doesn't submit. Um, so first, uh, uh, at the outset, I think it's also worth noting, this is sort of the mischief and the pernicious nature of the exploitation of January 6th that I've been talking about for months now. This is one of those uh, ancillary sort of per, in the parade of horrible is horrible outcomes of the exploitation of that event. You have obviously the attempt to criminalize President Trump and then anyone and everyone around him and the conservative movement itself via the J6 Select Committee. You have the effort to disqualify members of Congress from being able to run in 2022 on grounds that they support an insurrection. And now you have the effort to force the recusal of, if not force off the bench, Justice Clarence Thomas for the crime of his exceptional jurisprudence. At the end of the day, that is what it's about. In addition to the fact that what he represents and what he and Jenny represent is uh, the worst thing from the left's perspective, a multiracial couple that destroys their identity politics mold in holding views that are completely intolerable to them. And Justice Thomas himself has been arguably, I would say, the most revolutionary justice. I mean, certainly on the conservative side of things, the most revolutionary justice in the last century. And maybe you could argue ever. I don't know that that would be hyperbole necessarily. So what is the assault about? Yes, sure, they would love to get a recusal. Uh, here on, on cases coming up in 2022 that the left fears pose an existential threat to their dominance. I also think this is about the politics of personal destruction here are about sending a message to the family members of other justices who might dare vote the wrong way from the left's perspective, which has not really been talked about in terms of what is the purpose of this assault. Even though I think they know that Justice Thomas and Ginny will not back down, other judges, of course, it would appear have been cowed in the past and their jurisprudence has changed once they've made it to the highest court in the land. And that's because look at the price you pay of your family being smeared, your friends being smeared and destroyed. And in this case, potentially you have the scepter of the J6 committee going into your text messages and then being selectively leaked. Uh, and it's basically it's the criminalization of dissent at the end of the day, which has been a, a running theme that I've been addressing and that that we've all been focused on for a long time. So 
I just think that this is ultimately, this shows the perpetual high-tech lynching that anyone who will face, who rises to a level of power, who holds the wrong views, it's shameful, it's disgusting, it's outrageous, and I feel for the Thomases, but thank God they stand as a symbol of toughness and courage in the face of this just outrageous, anti-American, nefarious onslaught that they've been dealing with now, again, for 30 years. Well, and Ben, we can transition to final thoughts now. Do you have anything you'd want to add uh, to that? I, I think that conservatives have an obligation and a responsibility to stand up and fight on the Thomas's behalf here. And, and starting with realizing that, yes, on the merits, we can go through all the reasons that these arguments against the Thomases are asinine. But the issue is never really the issue here. The issue is about threatening, intimidating and punishing anyone who dares not to submit to leftist orthodoxy. And that needs to be stated at the outset. This is not about the issue. It's not about the merits here. It's about trying to destroy these people as a symbol to anyone else who dares fall in line with them. Yeah, I'll quickly add to that. It, it shows um, from my perspective the, that Clarence Thomas and Jenny Thomas have never given an inch. Um, I actually think is a, a great example um, for how conservatives should handle what are partisan smears that are treated by the political establishment um, as legitimate lines of inquiry. By the way, as a journalist, I think, uh, you know, aside from some of the very tawdry personal implications and the nature of like Jane Mayer's disgusting journalism, which in regard to Clarence Thomas goes all the way back to the 90s and her book about the confirmation hearing. Uh, I think all of this is not all of it. I think a lot of it is like perfectly fine for public information and for, you know, journalistic curiosity. Not all of it, uh, but the basic nature of like uh, the wife of a Supreme Court justice doing activism. I think it's fine that the public knows that. I think it's fine that journalists are, are writing about the public knowing that in the spirit of uh, public information. But this is not the way that this is treated by the press as some sort of very legitimate reason to have these news cycles about Clarence Thomas possibly resigning or Clarence Thomas. I mean, it's just a joke. It's a complete a continuation of a partisan smear campaign that has gone to disgusting depths um, for decades now. And I think the Thomas's sort of resolve and, and refusal to really even acknowledge um, these ridiculous charges and smears is an example and the conservative movement should have learned from them a long time ago. Um, but you know, at the very least should take note now. So the the only thing that I'll add on, on on Justice Thomas is making a slightly related point, which I think that he will probably get the last laugh relatively soon, um, whether it is this term or next term. And next term, I'm, I'm looking particularly closely at the affirmative action litigation. So the court has granted cert in these parallel cases, both out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who, thank God, lost to Kansas in the title game on Monday, or else me as a Duke alum would have been had a very sad week this week, even sadder than it would have been otherwise. Um, but I, I, Justice Thomas on affirmative action and kind of race-based issues obviously has a very unique perspective. He has been kind of un uniquely outspoken on this, and I predict that he will have his kind of career-defining uh, majority opinion, uh, and it will come in the form of ending affirmative action in America, and that will come, I think, in June 2023. So let's be on the lookout for that. I do think that he will kind of get the last laugh on this. That, will, that really will be his signature kind of career-defining majority opinion in a way that kind of Justice Scalia had for D.C. versus Heller, the Second Amendment case. Justice Thomas has not, to my knowledge, had kind of a truly kind of momentous, like deeply substantive, impactful majority. He's ha obviously had a lot of impactful majority opinions as it pertains to kind of habeas and things a little more kind of in the weeds, legal and nerdy. But that will kind of be, I think, his career defining majority opinion. I, for one, am just so deeply excited for it. Um, I wanted to make one very quick point as well, th th sticking with the legal theme. I saw a lot of people dunking on Ted Cruz for something he said on Fox News earlier this week. So he was he was explaining the numerous reasons why he's going to oppose uh, Katanji Brown Jackson. And one thing that he said was that you know her her career as a, as, a, as a public defender kind of indicates that she probably has kind of a natural sympathy or inclination for, on the side of the criminal. 
all these kind of left-wing zealots were kind of freaking out and saying, oh, how dare Ted Cruz kind of undermine, you know, your right to due process, your right to a free and fair trial. That is, that is a deliberate kind of misreading. They are fighting a total straw man there. The notion that you have a constitutional right to a free and fair trial, to due process, things like that, has nothing whatsoever to do with the career decisions that you personally choose to do. Um, and, and, you know, I think I, I think it is deeply meaningful and it, I think it, it is telling that she chose to make a career in part as a public defender. And I think that's totally, totally fair game. Um, in my personal kind of anecdotal experience, I have seen way more kind of qualified people with kind of better credentials, kind of just sharper legal acumen, take the path of prosecutors over public defenders, just generally speaking. All of this is totally fair game. Ted Cruz is obviously a very experienced lawyer. He knows what he's talking about in this respect. So I thought that I thought that attack from the left was just totally misguided. But this is kind of where we are now. And this is, you know, as my final thought, I would just sort of take it back to like this idea that, you know, this is, it, it's, it's not enough to smear people. It's this effort to actively destroy them um, that we see as a campaign, you know, from powerful elites, you know, in the, in the media and elsewhere. And, you know, we're, we're in a situation where, yes, I think, you know, we can look at Justice Thomas and Jenny Thomas and say, well, it's, it's amazing that they survive this and, you know, because they just don't care. Well, they, they don't have to care in, a, in the sense that Justice Thomas has a lifetime appointment, right? <laughs> it's the same thing when you talk about Elon Musk. I think Tucker Carlson, when he was reporting on, you know, Musk going to Twitter, he was like, just wait, they're going to start calling him a racist and a transphobe and like anything else that you can throw at him. But it's almost like he's too big to fail, right? When you're the richest man in the world, it's like, yeah, you don't care because you can buy access anywhere. But I think like, until we get a hold of this trend, there are normal people everywhere that suffer, you know, from these sort of doxing attacks aided and abetted by the media. We saw this with the Ottawa truckers protest. If you remember, the media, you know, went after normal people. We saw this with Kyle, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial when people donated to Kyle Rittenhouse. They got fired from their jobs. So, you know, this is it. it it's just this creeping illiberalism in the public square, you know, that I don't know what is going to take, you know, to reach a critical mass for people to say this has to stop. It's it's fundamentally un-American um, when you've raised the costs of expression so much that you know the self censorship now taking place among you know people afraid to speak out on issues. I think is is immense. But I do think it's it's why it's important to defend people like Clarence Thomas, like Jenny Thomas, when they haven't done anything wrong, but they're still being subject to that smear campaign. So we should, you know, I'm glad that that Josh brought it up. Um, because it's something I think we have to keep talking about. I think it's amusing that all of her final thoughts continued on the, the Ginny and Clarence uh, Thomas topic. Um, and I think it was, it's sort of a poignant note to end on. So on behalf of Ben, Rachel, Josh, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.